The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. My name is Janie. I went to UW. Yeah. Go dogs. When this was an actual gang sign, that's when I went to UW. Um, a long time ago, back in the 90s, when a lot of you were born, last time flannel was in style, which is great. I'm glad it's back. Um, so uh, I wanted to show you a picture of myself, an embarrassing picture of myself from college. Here's the one that I found that I want to share with you. Oh, wait. Oh, that's right. Church with six inches of hair on the top of his head. Hermione, there is your Harry Potter. Just want to point that out. Um, all right, I'm sure he'll get back to me. That's his composite in PyCap, so you can see that all the time if you're so inclined. Um, anyways, uh, if you've been here over the past couple of weeks, you know that we have been going through a series in the book of John. Um, the first year of Jesus' ministry, it's called Road Trippin' with Jesus. And uh, Ryan Church uh, led us through the first couple weeks. Two weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 1 when Jesus went and got his disciples and said, hey, disciples, and said, hey, come and see what I'm going to do in my ministry. And then last week, we looked at the wedding in Cana when Jesus performs his first miracle. And Ryan pointed out that the miracle that Jesus performed helped save people from shame. And Jesus' Jesus' desire in our life is to free us from shame and move toward love and acceptance from him. So tonight, we are moving on to our next location in our road trip with Jesus. We are going to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple that's there, the center of culture, faith, society, life, everything, right there in Jerusalem and the temple. That is what was central. So that's where we're going to go tonight. But before we take a look at Scripture... I want to stop a minute and um, pray. Holy God, we thank you that we get to come together and worship you. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is present with us. And the most holy God is everywhere we go. We pray that tonight that uh, the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of, our, all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, God. We want to glorify you in your holy name. Amen. Okay, before we read the text, I want to set a scene for you. Um, we're in Jerusalem, we're at the temple, and it's called Herod's Temple because he's the king that helped build it. And for different festivals, holy days throughout the year, like Passover, observant Jews would make a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple, so they could offer sacrifices, so they could give offerings. Um, so that's why the temple was really important. And with the temple, actually, there's a picture of it, if you want to throw that up there. Um, so that's the temple. The whole thing's temple, not just that building. And there's there's walls all the way around it. And I want to point out the court of the Gentiles. So a Gentile is just a non-Jew. Um, and the temple provided a place for Gentiles to come and worship God. And that was the court of the Gentiles right outside of the building. So that's what's going on, and I've asked Shane to actually read the scripture for us um, tonight from John chapter 2. So if you can put the scripture on the screen, he's going to read, start at verse 13 for us. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all the all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for those, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple has, he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need human testimony about them, for he knew what was in them. All right, thanks, um, Shane. So Jesus' ministry starts with a miracle that only a few people know about, only the disciples and a few servants know about it. And then he goes to Jerusalem, and in the most public place possible, um, he does some teaching and shows some actions um, that were central to life in Israel. So what happened at the temple would have spread like wildfire. It would be like today in 2015 when something happens, a big deal, right? And you see it on Twitter and Facebook constantly. Um, like an internet, I think an internet website would be something like this uh, when we have, you won't believe who cleared the temple, click here to see. Or um, hashtag Jesus cleaned house, right? That's what everyone would say. Or I can imagine being in line at the grocery store and seeing the cover of Us Weekly that would have something like this on it, which would say, Jesus brought them to their knees. <laughs> you guys, I'm so good at titles. So exciting. Uh, my point is... Everyone would have heard about what Jesus did. Everyone would have heard about it. I personally love this incident because I think it gives us a multidimensional understanding of Jesus. We often kind of only think of him as the gentle guy in the field with children or with a lamb in his arms, right? We have a couple pictures of what that looks like. A guy who, if he spoke, he only spoke in a soft whisper. Or he would say, he would only talk to people and say, heidily doodly, like Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the picture we often assume of who Jesus was. Maybe he was strong, right? But he would be strong like the rock in a kid's movie, not the rock in Fast and Furious 8 colon, why wait? I'm so good at titles, right? Okay. <laughs> this, this story uh, is actually in all four Gospels. But what's really interesting is that in the other three Gospels, the story is at the end of Jesus' ministry, right before he goes to the cross. But in this Gospel, John puts it at the very beginning. John wants us to know right off the bat that when Jesus sees that God is being abused in some way, He's kicking butt and taking names. It matters to him. As we hear the account, the first question I think that comes to mind is, why is he so upset? 
What really ticked Jesus off in this circumstance? It was outrageous for two reasons. First of all, what was happening actually had to happen. The selling of animals for sacrifices, uh, you had to do that if you were going to go into the temple. You had to buy, a sa- buy an animal. And then you also had to change your money and get rid of the pictures of Roman officials on your coin if you're going to give it to the temple treasury. So those things actually had to happen. They weren't sinful. Conducting business and, you know, banking, those are essential to our lives. That's not what Jesus is, has a problem with. But Jesus wants them to see the temple isn't a shopping mall or a bank. It's a place one comes to worship the God of the universe. It should be entered with a different mindset than everyday activity. You should do your business before entering. You enter into God's temple as a holy place. Our mind, our spirit, our heart should be tuned in to reverence, not transaction. John wants us to know that Jesus came to restore God's honor. The Jesus that we see in John is concerned with more than anything else, hallowed be thy name. That's what Jesus wants us to know about John. I mean, no, that's what John wants us to know about Jesus. Hallowed be thy name. And secondly, Jesus was upset also with where they were doing it. They were doing it in the court of the Gentiles. So they were demonstrating a complete insensitivity to worship and an insensitivity to people. I mean, Gentiles can come in here, but it's probably easier for us to just do our business here, so we don't really care if this is where they come to do their worship. Attention to the outsider, those who are outside of society and need to be brought in, that is one of the most important elements of Jesus' ministry. He cares about bringing social justice. And he cares about the way people are being mistreated. Jesus has a passion to draw attention to these people who need to be included in worshiping God. And he does that from the very beginning of his ministry. So the people who are doing these things in God's house, who are doing these transactions, who are selling and exchanging money, do they respect God? What are they thinking? I think that to them, religion is more of a transaction, nothing beyond that. They might have a relationship with God, but they think, okay, these are the things that we're supposed to do in order to have a relationship with God. It's transactional. They're going to honor God with actions, only what is necessary but they're not going to honor God with their lives. It was religion, not relationship. If we look again at the story in John um, 2.18, I think we might have the verse again, um, what the Jews said to him. Give us this, prove your authority to do all this. Give us a sign. What are you doing? You're bringing a whip in here and flipping over tables, Right? What gives you the authority to do that? Who are you? In some ways, they're throwing this checklist of religion in Jesus' face, and they're like, if you are who you say you are, then you need to show us how you are going to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. And they thought the Messiah was going to come in and overthrow the Roman government. So Jesus comes in, and he says, I'm going to show you some, di- I'm going to, I'm going to fulfill some prophecies, but not the ones you expect. He says, Psalm 69, 9, that's the verse. He says, zeal for your house consumes me. And then, um, I think we have verses of a couple more in Jeremiah. Yeah. Jeremiah 7, 11, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. 
in Zechariah 14, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. So saying that what was happening in the temple could be happening anywhere in people's lives. Jesus is coming to make some changes, and he's coming to end religion. The end of a transactional understanding of a relationship with God. If I do this, God, you do this for me. That's how it works. I'll do this, and you'll do this, and then we'll be fine. This isn't even a reform of religion. This is a complete and total replacement. That is what Jesus is bringing. So what does the end of religion mean? How do we understand this? If Jesus doesn't give us a checklist of how to follow him, what we're supposed to do, then how do we know God loves us? If you look closely at the gospel, Jesus did not provide an extensive body of rules. Do this, don't do that. That's not what Jesus did. Instead, Jesus provides a community, a community-based on relationship. Not religion, relationship. Not transaction, community and conversation and transformation. And the way we know how to follow Jesus, it's not a list of rules, it's the Holy Spirit within us helping us understand what Jesus's message is, helping us understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now I asked the in-speaking team this question, why do we default to a checklist, to expected religion. Why is that our default? Do these things, you're a Christian. Don't do these things in order to stay a Christian. And their answer was, it's easier. And they're right. It is easier. I do it all the time. I don't have to reveal myself to Jesus for fear that he might not accept me. So I come up with an appropriate sacrifice, something that I can say, well, I'll give you this part of my life, and then I know that I've earned your love enough that you're still going to be on my side. It's easier to do something than be someone. It's easier to perform for a reward than accept an unearned gift. Jesus wanted to not only reform the expectations of what happens in the temple, Jesus wanted to completely replace them. To replace them with himself. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he is the temple of God. And those who follow him, us, those who are adopted into his family, we are the temple of God as well. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that's, like, amazing. The temple that Jesus was in in this incident was destroyed in 70 AD or something. I might have just made that date up, but I think it was. Anyways, that actual building was was destroyed in, in 70 AD, and it was replaced by us. Our soul, our spirit, our very lives is where God dwells. Here's a question I want to, I want you to answer this honestly. Do you have a transactional relationship with God? I'll do this for you, God, and then you'll do this for me. 
And we all know faith in Jesus isn't a checklist, right? It's formative, it's transformational. It's as far from religion as you can get. Jesus doesn't want us to make a deal with him like he made the deal of all deals when he gave his life for us. He wants to know us. He wants to know you fully and completely, not just part of your life, not just one small sacrifice. That's the only sacrifice, that's the only checklist, the only religion we need is to bring ourselves. But no matter how much we know that truth, when things get difficult, we lean on religion. We look for a transaction. Oh man, I feel far from God. Things are going terribly. My circumstances are bad. God must be displeased with me for some reason. I gotta get serious. I gotta figure out the right sacrifice to take, to make, to take to the temple and lay it before God's feet and then God will be cool with me again. Author John Lynch has a great illustration of what this looks like and I wanna share it with you tonight. But as I do that, I need you to imagine with me. Okay, imagine that we're in front of that temple, the temple that we have a picture of. I'm in front of the temple and I just feel like God feels far away. I've got to do something right to get back with God. So I walk into the temple courts and I see some signs in front of me pointing to rooms on either side of the temple. And one of the signs says, pleasing God. And the other sign says, trusting God. It doesn't feel like things are going right in my life, so I'm choosing the pleasing God room. I want to do something. So I come to the door, and above the door, it says, striving to be all God wants me to be. Yes, that is what I'm missing. I reach for the doorknob. It says self-effort. I say, of course. And I walk inside, and it's a room full of people. And these people look great. A hostess walks up to me, and she says, hi, welcome to the room of good intentions. Hi. I found my place. These people are sold out. I am sold out as well. And they all start talking to me, but they're all saying the same thing. They say, we're doing fine. Fine as can be. Life's going fine. Relationships are good. Everything's clicking. We are all just doing fine. And the hostess asks, how are you? And I say, well, I'm struggling a bit. Um, God feels far away, but now I'm here with you and I'm excited. I got some things I'm going to do. Things are going better. And I look at the people and they look back at me and the hostess hands me a mask. I take it, I put it on and I say, I'm doing fine. I finally got it together. I'm doing everything right in the room of good intentions. There's a banner at the back of the room and it says, working on my sin to improve my relationship with God. That's right. That's what's wrong. That's why God seems far away. I need to work on my stuff. Now, this room feels great at first, right? I mean, everything's going. I'm working hard. But no one told me that every day, 34 more wheelbarrows of my sin would be brought in. The fervency, the work, the excellence, the perfection, they're great. I'm feeling great. And then they start to fade. Superficial appearances, cynicism, exhaustion. 
take hold. I am so tired. Despite all of my good intentions, my striving, my effort, I'm starting to feel worse and worse. Pleasing God turns into, what do I have to do to keep God pleased? The formula, more right behavior plus less bad behavior equals godliness, that is wrong. That is as far from biblical as you can get. We'll never get rid of our sin by working on it. It just makes us hide. It causes us to wear masks and pretend we are fine. So I stumble out of the room of good intentions and I go back to the front of the temple and I see the sign for the other room, trusting God. Are there any other rooms? Any other options? You're sure? This is it. Trusting God, that seems so vague. What am I supposed to do? I need to be fired up, care more, sin less, buck up, tighten up. But I am so tired. I don't have anything left. So I limp to the room for trusting God, and above the door it says, living out of who God says I am. The doorknob says humility. I roll my eyes. Walk in the room. (laughs) And this room is full of people, and I don't want to be rude, but they don't look good. The hostess walks over to me and she says, Welcome to the room of grace. The room of grace. I notice that on the ground there's all the things that Jesus kicked over earlier in the temple. Appropriate sacrifices, perfect offerings, good intentions. She says, how are you? I say, I'm fine, perfectly fine. And I look at the people in the room, and they look back at me, and I feel judged. I say, all right. Take a deep breath and say, listen, everyone, I am not fine. I haven't been fine for a long time. I am tired, confused, afraid. I am full of shame and loneliness. I'm sad all the time. I can't make my life work. I am actually... Probably, if you knew everything about me, you would say, get out of our little room. I am not fine. Thanks for asking. I reach for the doorknob to leave, and I hear a voice from the back of the room, and it yells out, that's it? That's all you got? I'll take your shamefulness and loneliness, and I'll raise you a horrible breakup, perpetual failure, and chronic knee pain. And the hostess says to me, I think that's his way of telling you, you're welcome here. This is a room full of real people, broken people, not a mask to be seen anywhere. I am one of the broken people. I'm in the room of grace. And the banner at the back of the room says, standing with God, with my sin in front of us, working on it together. For so long, I thought I would find Jesus in the other room, the room of good intentions, the room of striving, fixing, achieving. But he can always be found in the room of grace. 
And Jesus walks over to me and he takes me by the shoulders and he looks in my face and he says, I know. I know, I know, and I love you so much. I know about all the stuff, but there is nothing you can do to make me love you any less. And he puts his shoulder around me and we turn and look at my sin and he says, he puts his arm around my shoulder, not his shoulder around me. Put his arm around my shoulder. We turn and look at my sin and he says, wow, that is a lot. My, my, my. We will work on this when you're ready. Those in the room of good intentions, they're like the people who pointed a finger at Jesus and said, prove yourself to us. They hate the room of grace. They think, they're not going to live for Jesus. They're just going to go on sinning all the time. They're just going to expect grace to be around them. But they don't know two things. We have a new identity. On my worst day, my worst day, I am Christ in Janie. Christ in Janie covered with a robe of grace. We don't want to take advantage of God. Our goal is to have free hearts for relationships so that we can be loved fully and completely and we can fall in love with the one who loves us that way. Because of the room of grace. It was never about us. It was never about us working harder, being perfect, figuring it out, always succeeding. It was never, ever about us. It was about Jesus living in us, in the temple where the most holy God dwells. 